0: This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com.
1: For millions, it must have seemed like a dream. Who were these conquerors from New York that had dealt Goliath such a blow? Were they dreamers? Not really just a football team. This is their story. Ladies and gentlemen, it's my honor to open today's welcoming ceremonies for our conquering team. It is a privilege on behalf of the greatest city in the world to pay tribute to the greatest football team in the world, the New York Jets.
0: Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to The Football Odyssey. I'm your host, Aaron Harris, and today I'm speaking with Bob Lederer, the author of Beyond Broadway Joe, The Super Bowl Team That Changed Football. In this episode, Bob and I discuss his book that looks at the various unheralded players on the 1968 New York Jets football team that shocked the world with their 16-7 victory over the vaunted Baltimore Colts of the National Football League in Super Bowl III that all but legitimized the American Football League and the forthcoming merger between the two rival leagues. If you're a football fan, a Jets fan, or simply a sports history fan, this is a book you had to have on your bookshelf. So if you'd like a copy, I've attached a link to Bob's book in the description. As always, feel free to subscribe, share, and let us know what you think of our conversation. That said, thank you for listening, and here is Bob Letterer. All right, Bob Letterer. Thank you for joining us tonight, sir. How are you this evening,
1: Aaron? Thank you for inviting me. I, it's one of my favorite subjects, obviously.
0: Of course. So going into this interview, I rewatched Super Bowl three, and it's probably my third or fourth time watching it. Commercials um, I, and all? No, commercials were edited <laughs> out. That would have been the true fan, right? Yeah. But as as I finished watching it, I began to wonder,
1: how many times do you think you've seen it at this point? Uh, I watched it probably uh, first to last play a dozen times, maybe more. There, uh, for, the book, for the book, I probably did it, you know, the bulk of those 12 times, maybe nine or 10 of them.
0: Was there always something different that stood out to you every time you watched it?
1: It just kind of reminded me. It was a rather dull game. It was it was not a scintillating game like we saw on Sunday. Although the defense has dominated so much that um, you know in in the Rams and Bengals game, it certainly wasn't like you know the game last year uh, with Tampa or or some of the really good uh, the the St Louis Tennessee game, mm-hmm. uh, the, the Giants beating the Patriots when the Patriots were undefeated. It was a rather ho-hum affair except that holy cow the Jets are winning and they're winning by more and they're winning by more and what's going on and uh-oh here comes Unitas that was well, probably it, the most the shocking the most um uh fearsome part of that game when Unitas came in
0: see I for me every time I watch it I actually enjoy it more and more because It is a different brand of football, especially in terms of the formations and the schemes. But being able to watch some of these players really stand out like Matt Snell or Johnny Sample, like you have guys that are just very intelligent players, very hard runners. Because I think sometimes you could look back at some of the old players and underestimate their talents by today's standards, but they are really as every bit as talented, I think, as you could make a comparison. Well, to I, think, I
1: think the players are more talented today, but I'll tell you what, what I saw on Sunday in the Ram-Bengal game. Mm-hmm. George Sarrow was Cooper Cup before there was Cooper Cup. Mm-hmm. And it didn't really show it in that game necessarily, but I could show you a couple of plays in super slow. That would amaze you. But the Jets had a defensive lineman named John Elliott, who was their defensive right tackle. And he was Aaron Donald. He was so quick. As I point out in the book, um, guys who outweighed him by fifty pounds said to me they couldn't get a clear shot at him. I went, "What do you mean? He was so quick." Um, defensive tackle on the offensive tackle on the Kansas City Chiefs, who's in the Hall of Fame, said to me, "I tried to hit John Elliott in the numbers to knock him out of the way." and I couldn't get a clean hit. I would glance off his shoulder because that's the way it was. And he did the same thing John Elliott did that in the second half, Aaron Donald did. And that is they placed him either right over the center or just to the side of the center to, to create a situation where he was not gonna get double teamed or if he did get double teamed, the guys next to him were prepared to take advantage of that double team. So uh, I learned a lot from talking to jets players in the book. And after the book was published and I see things in the games, like I've just pointed out to you.
0: Yeah. And the having a defensive tackle over the center was an AFL trademark in pro
1: football. And, and the jets really were the first to do it. And they, Frank chances are that we who was the coach of the jets and who was part of the Paul Brown tree probably learned that from Paul Brown. Right. Uh, but yeah, the jet, that was one of the first things that the jets did.
0: I've heard you mentioned that when you were young, you always enjoyed the other players aside from name more so than Namath. I should say. So do you kind of look at this book now and think that it was a self-fulfilling prophecy that you would write this book for the world to read?
1: It's something I always wanted to do, but it wasn't for the reason that I ultimately did write this book, which was to give the long overdue credit to the, as I call it, 44 other guys who didn't have the name Namath on the back of their uniform, and who I also, uh, you know, strongly emphasize now, elevated Joe into celebrity status that is now listed, listed for 53 years. Now, Joe Namath was a star before that game, but if Joe Namath had not won that game, A, he would not be in the Hall of Fame, and he would not be as mem- memorable as, as he is now. So I wasn't destined to write the book, but as I explain in the book, it was my boys who sat down and watched one of the 12 time- times I, wrote, I saw the game and they asked me questions like, who's this 75 and who's that 81? And I would point out to them who they were and what their numbers were and what their achievements were and all pro five times. You know, this guy was my favorite player, that sort of thing. So, um, and, and the thing was, we only heard in the papers from Sonny Werblen, the owner, great publicity hound, Weeb, you bank the coach for obvious reasons, and Joe. Once in a while, you heard Matt Snell. Once in a while, you heard Don Maynard. But most of the time, you didn't. And so they became even more curious to me as, who are these guys and what are they like? And that made meeting them um, in in some cases, or in most cases, on the phone. But later, I went to the 50th anniversary celebration, and I got to meet these guys face to face, which I had not done during the book process.
0: Now, growing, you're from New York originally?
1: I was born and bred in Flushing, New York. I lived in two different areas within Flushing. One was, I looked this up, 2.3 miles from Shea Stadium, where the Jets played. And the other location was like 3.1 miles from Shea Stadium. But I was an easy bus ride and, and walk across the Roosevelt Avenue Bridge, which connected Main Street Flushing with Shea Stadium. And I did that over and over, although I only went to one Jets game at Chase Stadium in my life. Uh, so um, what, which game was it? I saw them lose to Kansas City the year before they went to the Super Bowl. Okay, Kansas, well, this well. the year uh, this is the year that Kansas City had come off their Super Bowl defeat, but they were still a, a really an awesome team. yeah, and I saw the Jets. I was freezing my you know what off at the next to last row in chase stadium way up in the ble- in the bleeding seats uh and and saw them lose uh ironically i think they lost 16 to 7.
0: Mm. now were you a, a giants fan that converted to a jets fan for whatever reason or were the jets kind of your introduction the giants
1: to root for the giants <laughs> ah, I retract it. that question no i i um the first football game I ever watched on TV was the Giants-Bears championship game in 1963. I just happened to turn it on. Mm-hmm. Um, I got interested in the Jets because I was a Mets fan in 1963. I discovered baseball when I was 11 years old. And when the baseball season ended, um, and I remember it distinctly, I was in my grandmother's apartment and the baseball season was over and it was a Saturday night and I turned on the radio and I turned on the station that carried the Mets games. And lo and behold, the jets were on on WHN 1050, New York. And in fact, the Mets announcer, Bob Murphy was doing the play by play. And I said, well, this is interesting. I didn't know anything about football mm-hmm. and I decided that and I was going to be, you know, I was going to pay attention to the jets. And I did. And I watched what they were doing and watched very carefully. Every guy that they, that they acquired and how are they any good and where they come from and you know mostly are they any good and then I started to make comparisons in my mind because that was the only way you could do it you know is, is Larry Grantham the Jets best linebacker is he good enough to play in the NFL I don't know how good would Joe Namath be in the NFL I don't know the only guy that I felt confident about was the punter Curly Johnson because a punter is a punter Right. You know, I mean, he just kicked the ball Uh, and he was Curly Johnson was darn good. So, um, you know, that that's that's how I related. But no, I was not a giant fan. I've rooted for the Giants when they've been in the Super Bowl um, as a a transplant from New York and living now in Chicago. But no, I'm not a giant fan.
0: Now, in the beginning, you talk about how the jets who at the time were known as the titans were the laughing stock in the afl so how did the jets kind of go about building their fan base especially when you have a good organization in a more popular league like the nfl
1: well uh, even back then it's not much different from today the first thing is you move into a new stadium Mm -hmm. the titans and the jets in their first year had to play in the old polo grounds which was a dilapidated um, s- stadium it was actually the, it was the polo grounds it was across the river from Yankee Stadium uh, in which separates Manhattan and the Bronx uh, the Yankee Stadium is on the Bronx side of Manhattan is on the other side of the East River um, to give you a little historical context when the Yankees got Babe Ruth they played in the polo grounds okay. and they out uh, drew fan wise, the New York Giants. And so the Giants owner said, get out of here, get yourself your own stadium. And that's why they moved across, literally across the river. It's like a, a half a mile. And the house that Ruth built literally is, is what happened. Polo grounds have been built in the early 1900s. And it had not really updated in much at all. Um, when the Giant, New York Giants left to move to San Francisco. Five years later, the Mets moved in, and they made some very basic modifications to it, but not really anything to speak of. And the Jets didn't really put any money into it either because they knew Shea Stadium was going up. It it got delayed for a couple of years by a construction strike and by a really, really horrendous winter uh, one year. But in 64, the Jets moved into the polo grounds and their season ticket base from, went from something like 6,100 to 39,000, just mm-hmm. by moving into a new ballpark. And you got to also remember, the New York Giants you know, had season ticket holders, and you couldn't get a ticket to a New York Giants game. So there were a lot of football fans who wanted to be able to, to go to football games. And in fact, there were a good number of New York Giants fans who bought Jets season tickets and went Saturday night when the Jets you know, preferred to play so they wouldn't have to compete on Sunday with the Giants for TV. Um, And so a lot of Giants fans became at least season ticket holders to the Jets.
0: Yeah, and you go in your book, too, talking about Sonny Werblin and how he was a big part in kind of transforming that image after Harry Wismer pretty much did everything he could to sabotage their image when they were still trying to get off the ground.
1: Harry Wismer was a character, and Harry Wismer was – you know, he was a, a, an acknowledged, terrific announcer in his time. You know, Al Michaels is, what, 80 years old? Uh, and uh, I think there are some other, you know, rather uh, aging, <laughs> and now, certainly a lot of baseball announcers are uh, getting up there. Harry Carey here in Chicago was, he was over 80 years old, and he was still doing the, the Cubs for years and years. Uh, Harry Wismer was a great promoter and showman, but he didn't have enough money. And he was trying to he was trying to somehow make it to Shea Stadium being opened and built because he felt if I can just get into that ballpark, I'll draw enough fans, no matter how bad the Titans are. um, And I'll be able to, you know, to make a go of it. And he never made it. He he had three seasons. The team never got better than seven and seven. And he was losing his shirt. He, he, he Things got so bad that, uh, uh, famously, one Saturday afternoon, as it was getting darker and darker in the Polo uh, the referee signaled, "Turn on the lights," and Wismer went, "No, you <laughs> <He> don't <laughs> want to spend the money on the electricity."
0: Yeah, he uh, he wrote a, an autobiography. the uh, The public calls it "Sport." Did you ever read that?
1: No, I should. I should. I yeah, you have a copy of it, I'd love to read it.
0: Yeah, it's essentially him just pointing the finger at everyone else. But it is funny to kind well, of see what kind and, of a person know, he was. Is,
1: there is a point to be made, but Harry Wismer didn't know anything about running the football team. And he was making a lot of football decisions. Yeah. And that was his second problem. But but Sonny Werblin was, was a like Wismer, a promoter and a showman, but he had money. And he had a syndicate around him of friends who also had money. And so he was willing to spend what he had to spend. In fact, he was willing to give money uh, before Namath showed up to just about any quarterback he could find that he thought was going to be an improvement and who would get publicity. He needed to get a quarterback, as he explained. He needed to get his Babe Ruth. And he wanted a quarterback who not only could really play, which Namath could, but who he could mold into a celebrity. And have running around New York City every night and having the media following him around with a, a starlet on his arm all the time with pictures being taken. And Namath became, you know, a big celebrity that way. Joe Namath was the first professional football player who actually drew women to the games. Mm. And that's, and that's a, a whirlwind concoction because he played up Joe's sex appeal and charisma.
0: Did the American Football League have, um, you know, the face of the league prior to Namath? Because it seems like when he came into the picture, he gave it a real identity. Was there a player prior to him being drafted that really kind of stuck out among American Football League fans?
1: No, they were Mickey Mouse League. That's not Mm. to say they didn't have some good players. They did. But no one paid much attention to them. They had a contract with ABC in 1960 through 1963 That basically had a game of the week okay so if you had one of the eight franchises and were a fan you might see your team play one once or twice during the year and of course never at home nobody televised any home games in those years I mean there were there were good players but the AFL was basically a bunch of uh, former Canadian league players and NFL players who just hadn't made the cut George Blanda um, became and honed his crafted quarterback in the American Football League with Houston and then later more famously with the Oakland Raiders. And Lynn Dawson, you know, was with Cleveland and got cut, went to the AFL. And no one really took him very seriously until he won a Super Bowl the, years, the year after the Jets won the Super Bowl. Um, and those are two really Great example. Babe Perilli, who was the Jets' backup quarterback their Super Bowl year, had been drafted in 1952 mm. by the Green Bay Packers. And he was very highly regarded, like second or third pick in the draft. And he had just bounced from team to team in the NFL, and he just wasn't good enough. And there were other you know, NFL rejects, you could call them, um, who were playing in the American Football League and, and who had a degree of success, Jackie Kemp. Becky Kemp was drafted by the New York Giants and went to San Diego in the AFL and eventually ended up with Buffalo and won back-to-back titles with the Buffalo Bills. And he was a pretty good quarterback, nothing really great to speak of, but the league got better and better. And what happened was, Namath was the crown jewel because of how much money he got. Um, He was considered in some quarters, Aaron, as perhaps the greatest quarterback prospect ever to come out of college football. And that was despite the fact that he had won me because he had gotten terribly injured his junior year at Alabama. And the Jets didn't even realize how bad the injury was until after they signed him to the contract. But what came to pass is once Namath got that kind of money, he got 427,000 for three years. The next year, all the other teams in the AFL, I mean, literally everybody and started paying outlandish amounts of money to guys who just were not as important uh, to the AFL because they didn't draw people into the stands, but they were, they were really good players. Um, But the year that the jets got Namath and I'm point this out in the book, they tried to sign Dick Butkus. (laughs) Yeah. I didn't know that. I didn't either. Uh, and, and in fact, I, I wrote Butkus, uh, he just went on to Twitter a couple of weeks ago.
0: He's and tearing I sent up. Him a
1: note, yeah. And I sent him a note and I said, Hey, listen, I know from my book that your buddy, Mike Tolliver, who was the Jets quarterback before Namath and, and who had been in Illinois with Butkus arranged for you to meet Sonny Werblin, and Werblin offered you a contract with a blank check. And all you had to do was fill it in, you know? I'd love to have just a brief conversation about that. Now I haven't heard back from him and I'll probably badger him a little bit more, but you know, when Mike Oliver told me that story and I said, are you S and me? And he said, no, I was there. I was sitting at the side of the table when, when Sonny pushed the contract over to Dick and Buck just said, there's no number in here. And Woblin said, fill in the number. And this is before he signed Namath. Before. Imagine. If the Jets in 1965 had had a rookie quarterback, Joe Namath, and a rookie middle linebacker named Dick Butkus. They could have had multiple Super Bowls. Well, well, maybe, but the thing that I also really point out is it would have changed the whole tone of the American Football League because if you had an animal like Dick Butkus, you know, just wrecking offenses every week and getting the publicity that he would have gotten in New York, um, the AFL would have put a lot more stock in building their defense, which they eventually did a year or two later. So he really could have been a difference maker. And as I pointed on the book, with or without uh, Butkus, they also tried to find, to sign Gail Sayers, and Kansas City wouldn't relinquish his draft rights.
0: Well, you know, Butkus, like you said, is on Twitter now, so maybe you can just tweet him and get a reply that way.
1: <laughs> we will, well, one way or another. I'll, I'll, I'll track him down.
0: Yeah, well, one of the interesting parts about the book when you're talking about Namath is whenever he, I think he was playing the Bills and he got knocked to the ground and Lou Saban goes over to talk to him and he just wanted to tell him like how important he was to the league and not only in terms of the image, but the financial security, the respect, It, it really kind of contextualized how this guy really turned the course of professional football, but also professional sports.
1: The word you're looking for is credibility. Yeah. He gave the AFL credibility because the NFL knew how important Namath was, how good Namath was. In fact, the, the Cardinals who had the NFL draft rights and who were negotiating uh, with, uh, uh, with, with uh, Mike Byte, who was Joe's uh, agent at the time, every time an offer or an, a offer came from Mike Byte and Namath, the Cardinals' owners would excuse themselves for five or 10 minutes leave and then they would come back and they weren't as it turned out having private discussions themselves they were calling the New York Giants to find out if the Giants would go along with those terms the Giants were very secretly pretty determined to sign Namath as well um, and and Mike bite the agent told me that Joe and he realized that and said hey if the New York Giants won't come out of the you know, the darkness out of the closet and negotiate with us directly, we're never going to sign with them. And that helped push him to the jets.
0: Well, and the ironic part about that, you mentioned the book is that we ubake wasn't didn't even want Namath in the first place. Correct. No, no, he did. Oh, he did. He, point, he, he pointed him out to Werblin. Okay. Um, did uh, Werblin not want him originally?
1: No, 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 no. Werblin wanted any quarterback who could stand on two feet and get and get okay. a headline. Okay. And, and make himself into a star. The year before Namath's senior year, junior year at uh, Alabama, um, there was a quarterback coming out of Miami, and I remember this as a kid, named George Myra. Mm-hmm. He was about six feet tall, and he had a gun for an arm. And Werblin was interested in signing him. Okay. And Weeb told him, no, let's wait a year. This guy Namath, and he showed him film of Namath. He said, George Myra's problem is he's not tall enough. And he said, six-foot quarterbacks can only take you so far. You need guys six, two, six, three, six, four, who can see you over the offensive line and over the defensive line. Uh, and that's why you know they didn't go after any other collegiate quarterbacks um until Namath came along. And of course, they signed the Heisman Trophy winner, John Ewart, out of Notre Dame, the same year that they drafted Namath. Ewart was their second round pick. And Werblin famously told. Uh, Sports Illustrated, in training camp the next year. I don't care if it's Joe or John that becomes a superstar. I just want one of them to mm-hmm. become our superstar quarterback.
0: Yeah, well, whenever you went into those chapters about Weeb Eubank, because as I get more and more into football history, he's a guy that, or a coach that I really have come to admire a lot. I mean, you mentioned Dr. Z a lot in your book, and I read the last season of Weeb Eubank about three years ago. So have I, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's it's an incredible book. And, but it always strikes me strange as he's underrated now and really underappreciated now, but it seems he was also that way back then. Like he never really got the same credit as Shula who he defeated or a Paul Brown or a Lombardi. Like, what do you think it was about Weed that kind of just slid under the radar with
1: people? You know, it's, Weed we just didn't try to, um, he didn't try to garner publicity for himself you know, I make a point in the book, we didn't like to uh, to find his players. He preferred that they be treated like men. And if they made a mistake, they'd be reprimanded. And he might find them 25 bucks and then he would give them the 25 bucks back. <laughs> he, he really wasn't into trying to be a taskmaster. You know, Lombardi's reputation was built on tough and gruff and obviously a great coach. And Tom Landry you know, for four or five years until the Cowboys got good was just, you know, he's Tom Landry. He was, he was a great defensive coach with the New York Giants as Lombardi was the offensive coordinator with the Giants in the fifties. Paul Brown was Paul Brown. I mean, he's really probably uh, in terms of innovation and that sort of thing and, and, and revolutionizing football, probably the greatest of all time. Now, Belichick obviously has exceeded all of them. You can't argue with success, but Weeb was un- unappreciated. And yet when you look that he took a Baltimore Colts franchise and a New York Jets franchise, each of which had essentially no talent at all and built within five to six years, each of them into, an, into a championship team, that's really saying something. And I, I will tell you, because we've said it himself, he had less to work with with the Jets than he did when he took over the Baltimore franchise. Cause they, they had some, some very young, very rough guys uh, that they molded into really good players in Baltimore who became, you know, famous, um, you know, like Ray Berry. And of course he, he discovered Unitas. And it's really funny. He, he claimed he discovered Unitas from looking at still pictures of Unitas throwing the football, there was something about the way he cocked his arm and held the ball that convinced Weeb that there was something special about him.
0: Interesting. When you were looking at those um, reports that, or his notes that he used to write about those players, I mean, did, did he give you uh, perspective on how he thought about personnel and how he thought about the game? Did that kind of give you some insights to his tricks of the trade and how he goes about developing players?
1: Well, I knew that we've emphasized intellect like any other football coach. You want, you know, big, tall, strong guys. Right. But unlike Kansas City, uh, the Kansas City Chiefs had this little shtick they used to do before each game because they had guys who were 6'8 and 290 pounds and 6'9 and 295 pounds.
0: And they would uh,
1: run their team out on the field and they would start with the littlest guy. And eventually the biggest guys would show up at the end. And that was supposed to intimidate you. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Jets didn't have any physically intimidating guys, but they had guys who were really good football players. And we used to tell his assistant coaches who did the scouting in those days to go to teams, ask the coach of the collegiate team, who's your best athlete. Who's also really smart because we've had, I wouldn't call them intricate offensive and defensive schemes, but he had, he had ways of, of building his offense and defense that required thought process among everybody on the field. I mean, the Jets in 69 in the Super Bowl um, had four guys playing defensive back, two corners and two safeties, who either in high school and or college had played quarterback. And so they intimately knew what offenses were trying to do as well and how, how to spot weaknesses and defenses and go after them.
0: That's interesting. I talked to Dan Fouts a few months ago, and he told me that Don Coryell was the same way, where he always wanted players that had played quarterback at some level, whether he, even if it was at high school, just to understand what the position requires and be able to understand the thought process, especially on offense, but it could also apply, especially yeah, in defensive you can, backs. You
1: could have it. You could have a uh, you know a a battle of of brains and wills. Yes, yeah, you, you know, and 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 I think they do it today, but I, it was very uncommon back then. Larry Grantham, who was the Jets' captain on defense, told me that the defense the Jets ran required that literally every one of the 11 guys on the field at the same time had to know what the other 10 guys were going to do on any given play. Mm-hmm. And that helped them not only to prepare, but to know that, Hey, the guy next to me is a little weak in doing this. And the guy behind me is a little weak doing that. So it, it would help them um, once the play was diagnosed um, to make slight adaptations as to, you know, how are they going to go about with their particular assignment? Uh, and I think that goes on a lot today, but the film back then uh, was, I think, even more important than it is today because the teams don't have a lot of time during the week to prepare for the next week. That's why you see, I think, somewhat better, uh execution in Super Bowl games, because there's two weeks between the championship games and the Super Bowl. And that gives them a lot of time to study all angles of film and even to look at multiple games.
0: Well yeah, and now you realistically you could use your phone, your iPad, you know, it's not as a laborious process of setting and, up the that, film.
1: That, that's part of it too, but but still you you know you have that much more time and you have so many assistant coaches. Uh, Rex Ryan told me that he was coaching Buffalo. He had 25 assistant coaches, and when the Jets won the Super Bowl, and this is not unusual, there were you had be like the head coach, and you had uh, five assistant coaches.
0: Yeah, that seems like like a skeleton crew compared to today.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, it was just much more responsibility. The Jet players told me that they think that it actually was a benefit because it, it built real team camaraderie and cohesion. And you really had to stick together as a team or you were not going to succeed.
0: Right now, in terms of players on the offensive side of the ball, we recently lost Don Maynard. I think it was a couple months ago watching him growing up. And what about him and his playing style stood out uh, compared to a lot of the other great receivers in the AFL?
1: Remember the playoff game a couple of weeks ago where Kansas City played Buffalo and like they had whatever 13 seconds left, no, no it was it before the 13 seconds where uh, I can't remember the guy's name, but he 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 broke open over the middle and had a 78 yard touchdown or something. Tyreek Hill, I watched that and I said to my son, That was vintage Don Maynard, and Don Maynard. He had, he had probably more straightaway speed than anybody in pro football at that point. Um, and he, he worked something out with Joe where if, if he was going to break a pattern, and, and he broke a pattern a lot because he saw that he could get open deep, he would just raise his hand and Joe would see him from 40 yards downfield and he would just throw the ball as far as he could throw it. Don Maynard was a real speedster. He was a track star in college. And ironically, although he was drafted by the New York Giants, he got cut by the Giants because the uh, offensive coordinator that replaced Lombardi, his name was Ali Sherman, he went on to coach, become the head coach of the Giants, told Maynard, you need to, need to break your running pattern. This is football, not track. And Maynard said, no. I mean, this is how I run. This is how I, I get open and Don Maynard could beat just about anybody downfield. In fact, the interesting thing about Super Bowl is that going into it, one of the um, uh, expectations was that the Jets were going to fail because Namath would not be able to throw the ball deep because the Jets would not be able to uh, get behind the vaunted deep zone that the Baltimore Colts had. And like the 10th play on offense Joe reared back and threw the ball and he beat the deep zone by about five yards. And it completely turned around the game because the Colts went, Holy, you know what? We need to double this guy because the next time he gets open like that, Joe's going to hit him. And sure enough, later in the game, uh, Joe did hit him, but he had a foot out of bounds in the end zone. But Don Maynard was a tremendous deep threat.
0: Yeah, that would have been a tremendous catch if he got that foot down. I know exactly which player you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, he was clearly out of
1: bounds. Some of the jet plays. Oh, he wasn't out of bounds. He was clearly out of bounds. But yeah, and he was hurt. He was. He became a decoy that day because he'd gotten hurt uh, in the championship game against Oakland, uh, and the Jets didn't know. Baltimore knew he was kind of hurt too, but they didn't know how much. Um, and and he did just enough to keep them honest. And on the right side of the Jets' offense. Baltimore just double teamed in the rest of the game. And that's why George Sauer junior had, you know, such a, a payday on the left.
0: Yeah. Well, let's stick with Sauer for a sec because his chapter was really interesting too. Number one, I didn't know he came from such a football background the way he did with his father. I I didn't know his father was involved with the Jets. I
1: I didn't know his father was such a football presence in historic terms. Uh, I had no idea about that. his, You know, for the people out there who don't know, George Sauer Sr. was a star in college football uh, in the 1930s. And, uh, you know, he was revered, you know, for how good he was, uh, you know, back then. And his career uh, progressed and he became the head football coach at uh, Navy and at uh, Baylor, um, and then he came to the Titans and was their player personnel director. And he was the only guy that the Jets retained from the Titans management. And I people claim it's because he still had a contract. Uh, but I've heard from people who said Werblin didn't care about that, he would have just paid him and told him to go away if there wasn't this great respect for him. And he's really the guy responsible for getting his son you know, to come and play in New York. George Sauer Jr. didn't even get drafted by the NFL because they were so sure that he was just going to sign with the Jets.
0: Well, at the end of the chapter, whenever you bring up the end of Sauer's life or when he's towards the end of his life, that there was someone that I think he worked with who was a friend that you spoke with. And he said that Sauer was always a guy who was chasing greatness, but he was always afraid of the greatness that he was chasing. Something to that effect. I mean, when you heard that, what? How did you make sense of that? Was that something that made you think he was more complex than anyone had known? Was he? How did you kind of interpret that? He that was, saying, he,
1: you you hit the word. It's complex. Uh, George George Sauer overthought things. Okay. Um, he was he was a guy. He was a philosopher. He was a guy who wanted to write the great American novel, and um love to write uh and and on the on the football field he would come up with words that people would use in conversation and he would say hold on a second and he would write those words down and and he wanted to incorporate them into this great book he was going to write that he never really finished um he was a real thinking man's player um I said before he was Cooper Cup before there was Cooper Cup. George Sauer Jr. ran such precise routes um, that nobody really could cover him. And he could deke you out of your, you know, out of your strap. And he had just enough speed if he caught the ball behind you that he'd be tough to catch. He could be caught, but he'd be tough to catch. And, and as, I didn't even know who Cooper Cup was a month ago. I'm, I'm a football fan, but, you know, you don't see the Rams play that often. So, yep. and when I saw him, particularly last Sunday, I said, geez, that's that's George Sauer Jr. I mean, because he just, you know, turn around, he'd make this great move. He'd turn around, the ball would be there, hit him right in the numbers. And you'd wonder, how can they do that play after play? In fact, I wondered, in the third quarter, when are they going to throw the ball to, to Cooper Cup? I mean, I know it can get open. Mm-hmm. And they tried every other, you know, player that they could try to get involved in the offense. And then, as we all saw, as as push came to shove, they went to cup because that was their go-to guy. George Sauer in the Super Bowl was the Jets go-to guy. And he just beat the Colts in their zone over and over again, short, medium, and long. Yeah, he made a lot
0: of tough catches. Now Whenever you started the book, you mentioned, I think, when you had called the, uh, the punter that, you know, he had been waiting for someone to call him to tell his story. Did you get the sense that most of the guys had always felt a little underappreciated given how Namath had taken the headline for that Super Bowl?
1: You're talking about Curly Johnson, and he had really bad CTE, even at the time that I interviewed the players. I talked to his wife, who told me everything. Okay. And that's the first thing she said to me um when i picked up when i picked up the phone and called them it was the first player i talked to and i told her who i was and that i wanted to i was just a fan and i wanted to write a book the definitive book about the other guys on the team and she covered the mouthpiece and said curly you won't believe this but there's a guy on the phone that wants to talk to you about the super bowl and i said you know i just heard you and she said oh okay and i she said but Curly's been waiting forty-eight years for somebody to to call and ask him about what happened. And Curly Johnson was a great storyteller, and he was the team prankster as well. So I am sure a lot of the stories would have been hilarious. Luckily, his wife had written down most of them, so she passed them on to me. The impression I got from a lot of other players was the same attitude: like, "What you want to talk to me mm-hmm. about the Super Bowl?" Um, nobody else said it the way Curly Johnson's wife said it. But I think the inference was there. And yet, there is a respect for Joe. And I, I can't really put my finger on it. But I think there's also a fear of crossing Joe by questioning anything about him. Um, it might just come down to the real basics, which are that as much as I can want to give credit to the other 44 guys and the assistant coaches and Weeb and everybody else. Let's face it, Joe was the difference maker in that game, and he was—he really was. Um, but if the other guys didn't all play to their absolute, um, you know, op- optimal capability, it just wouldn't have won that game. So, give Joe all the credit in the world, but never forget the other guys on that team, especially because the next week after the Super Bowl was the annual american football league all-star game the east against the west and 11 other guys on that jets team went to start uh for the east in that all-star game and um you know i've made a point i said to myself the other day rather than just make the point i gotta start naming these guys so you know jerry philbin the left defensive end and john elliott you know the right tackle and verlin biggs the right end and larry grantham the linebacker and um uh, and on on Matt Snell and Emerson Boozer and Maynard and Sauer and Pete Lammon at the tight end and Jim Hudson, the, the strong safety. I mean, they just they had a a team that was loaded that year. And unfortunately for them, a lot of them got hurt the year before and the year after the Super Bowl game. Well, the Jets might have won a couple of Super Bowls. Did you have the chance to interview Namath the book? He wouldn't talk to me. No. He wanted to get paid, okay. And his agent said to me, "You don't have a book without Joe." And I said, "The publisher has already got a contract with me." And the publisher told me the reason they want this book and are willing to pay me is that it's the only book that's been brought to their attention that's about everybody else on the team. And um, and that's a reality. I'm I'm very proud, of, you know, of that fact because really 50 years um, had really uh, thrown a lot of dust and dirt on top of a lot of these guys. I mean, people today don't know who Jerry Philbin was, but Jerry Philbin was, it was a terrific defensive end. And he was on the all AFL team that was named after, you know, 10 years of the league's existence. And the same thing is true of Larry Grantham, who yeah. should be in the hall of fame and Winston Hill, who in my forward, you know, I, I expressed my desire that one of the reasons to write the book is that I wanted Winston Hill and Larry Grantham to get into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. And just raising Winston's um, uh, profile, uh, just even a little bit, his daughters, you know, came to me after um, he died, which was before the book came out and said, hey, we appreciate everything you're doing to try to get our dad into the Hall of Fame. And they wanted to invite me to the Hall of Fame ceremony, but, you know, it, with the coronavirus and everything else, it was you right. know, very much just a family affair.
0: Yeah, I definitely have paid a lot closer attention to the players you talked about, especially on defense. I mean, yeah, the offense obviously speaks for itself because they had Joe with it, but the defense, I mean, Philbin and Grantham too was – those were intelligent players, but they're also physical, which makes for a great well, defense. But, but, I, but
1: I'll stop you right there and say you, you just have to give incredible credit to the offensive line. Yeah. Because if somebody who's watched the game, they I mean, you saw how Joe, except for two hits by Bubba Smith, mm-hmm. um, Joe really was not pressured. And the Jets center, John Schmidt, said to me, we were, we were good blockers for running plays. We were great blockers for pass plays, and they yes. were. They protected Namath. I'll give you a little other insight. It's also in the book. When Babe Perilli came over from the Boston Patriots in training camp in, in the 68 season, we Eubank, took him aside and said, you know that 2.8 seconds that you have to get rid of the ball in Boston? And Perilli, who had been you know, pro football, pro football play for 15, 16, 17 years. said, yeah, and we've said, forget the 2.8, you got 4.2 seconds to throw the ball here. He's in heaven. <laughs> Says a lot.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Was there a, being that you were 16 years old when you watched this game, was there one player that you were especially excited to talk to, like that 16-year-old version of you just comes out again?
1: Well, my two favorite players were, were Philbin and Emerson Boozer. Cool. um and i I, I love talking with them in fact they both ironically they both were among the hardest people to get to agree to talk uh, they both said to me I've told my story many many times you can find it in the newspapers in the magazines and I said nope there's something about you that I want to talk to you about that I know you have not been asked about and in like in the case of Philbin the very first sports talk telephone show, in the United States, was at WNBC in 1963 or 64. And the guy running the show was Bill Mazur, who became an institution in New York after that. And Bill Mazur was Jerry Philbin's godfather. He had been up in Buffalo when when Philbin had been playing at the University of Buffalo, and he wouldn't stop talking about Jerry Philbin. And that's how I got interested in Jerry Philbin as a kid. And so I told Jerry, I want to talk to you about Bill Mazur and he went, how do you know about Bill Mazur? And I said, I remember, I remember as a kid, how important that relationship was with you. And Boozer didn't want to talk to me either. And I said, Emerson, I want to talk to you about how you miraculously recovered from not one, but two ankle and knee injuries the year before the Super Bowl, And you got back in a year's time, ready to go and a better football player than you had been before. And he also said, okay, yeah, no one's really talked to me about that. When do you want to talk? Um, I I love talking to Matt Snell because Matt Snell doesn't talk to anybody. Yeah. He has a thing about the Jets, which I reveal in the book as to why he really hasn't wanted to do anything with the Jets organization. In fact, I spent more hours talking to Matt Snell. Than with any other player you know on the team and we we built a very nice chemistry to the point where at the end he actually said to me i've never talked to anyone about it do you want to know why i don't li- like the jets and i said tell me but but you got to tell me if i can use it in the book and he said let me tell you and then you tell me bob whether you want to put it in the book and he told me that he felt he'd been slighted by the Jets organization for, you know, for a, a a coaching job or some sort of job in the organization, which Sonny Werblin had promised him he'd have a job for the rest of his life if he helped the Jets, you know, win a championship. Uh, so Snell and I became, you know, real real good confidants, and he told me a lot of stuff, and it's revealed all over the book. A lot of these guys just told me almost without any cons- concern at all stuff that i don't think they would have shared with anybody
0: well snell wrote the uh
1: forward one of them in the uh, beginning of the book right yeah people and, and people in new york were shocked they said you talked to matt snell i said yeah how did you do that They went you were just you know, open trade, trade trade secret now
0: to, to sort of close off the book and the conversation i mean you, you end off the book by talking about Um, the impact that that victory had on pro football, obviously, but also the entire sports industry as a whole. So to kind of put it like in a hypothetical, if Baltimore does win this game, no matter how they do it, I mean, how do you think the modern NFL really looks?
1: There's no American football conference. Mm -hmm. You have one national football league in which the Jets are in the Giants division. Now this might have changed over the last 50 years but the right. idea was in fact Pete Rozelle the NFL commissioner spelled it out 2 days before Super Bowl 3 uh, he was going to absorb the 10 AFL teams put them in the NFL so the Jets and the Giants would have been together and the Dallas Cowboys and Houston Oilers would have been together and the 49ers and Raiders would have been together and you know everybody else would have fit in where they belonged um, so there wouldn't be an AFC and an NFC. And I don't think most people realize that at all. That would have been the single biggest change that we would not see today. Uh, and I think if you ask the average fan, if I had asked you, if I turned the tables and I was asking you questions, and I had asked you before you read this book, why is there an American football conference? Could you have answered that question? I could have, yeah, but I don't think most people could have answered it. My
0: age. I don't
1: think most people care, but I, it's such an important part of the history of the NFL. Um, and, I, and I pointed in the book, Monday Night Football happened because of Super Bowl three, Because ABC decided, you know what, we got to get a piece of this NFL you know, game too. And so they agreed, which CBS and NBC didn't want to do, that they would put on Monday Night Football. Salaries went up, the price for the rights to to telecast the games went way up. So the the players made more, the teams made more, and it really set into motion the spiral of spending for pro football that continues to this day. I mean, look, Amazon, I guess it is, is going to be televising Thursday night football. Um, So, I mean, where is it going to go from there? Um, you know, it's it's quite remarkable. It it really is quite remarkable.
0: Well, and plus, when you watch the game too, you know, there's like that simple NBC letter graphic that pops up. But beyond that, it's like Kurt Gowdy in front of the stadium just giving you a rundown of the pregame before you had all these seven hours, eight hour pregame shows. Yeah, they didn't
1: have. It was like it was like a two hour pregame show, as I recall that day. The game started at three p.m. Eastern time. Uh, you know, now it's like three p.m. Pacific time, yeah. 3. thirty that that the game starts. Do you remember but where you it, watched but, the game? But also, the Super Bowl became a spectacle. It right. became part of. It didn't become you know the national party celebration that it is now, but it would it completely set the the Super Bowl up as the ultimate game. The NFL was also ready because of the absorption that I just mentioned. Yeah they wanted to make sure that the AFL teams were not going to be in the Super Bowl and they figured again this is before Super Bowl 3 that the easiest way to do that was to take all the AFL playoff teams and NFL playoff teams and mix them together and thereby you know supposedly the NFL teams would dominate and just cream all the AFL teams and at the end you'd have you know a, a Green Bay Dallas Super Bowl game something like that and Super Bowl three changed all that, although it took until Kansas City won the next year for the pro football world, and notably the NFL and their owners, to concede that there, there now was parity between the two leagues. And really, it's remarkable that the AFL came that far. Not in 10 years, because historically, they started in 60, and in 1970, there was, you know, one NFL. But really, the last five years from the day that Namath signed his contract um, until, you know, the uh, the start of the NFL with AFC and NFC. Uh, they just had done a remarkable job of signing young talent and of bringing it along and, and making those teams, you know, really competitive. Do
0: you think that that Super Bowl team Jets could have defeated the first two Packers teams that won the Super Bowl?
1: Uh, I'll answer it this way. I asked all the players, were you, were you afraid going into Super Bowl three? And Don Maynard said to me, I wasn't afraid at all. Of course, my next question had to be, why? And he said, well, and he had big Texas twang. The Colts weren't being, met, weren't being coached by Vince Lombardi. They were being coached by Don Shula. Mm-hmm. If Vince Lombardi was coaching the Colts, I'd have a lot of concern. Wow. But Lombardi was—he was a god. Yeah, I mean, it really, in retrospect, there are a lot of people who said, you know what, Kansas City and Oakland had no business being on the field with Green Bay because of Lombardi. Those those Green Bay teams were winning every year. Yeah, you know, Cleveland Cleveland won the won the NFL in '64, and the Bears won the NFL in '63. But other than those years, Green Bay was, was winning the championship almost every year.
0: Yeah, and Lombardi. yeah, that was well said by Maynard. All right, Bob, do you want to tell everyone where they can get the book?
1: Well, the book is called Beyond Broadway, Joe. And I'll tell you to get it from Amazon for two reasons. First of all, good price. Mm-hmm. Secondly, read the reviews if you have any doubt at all. My favorite review is from a guy who was a Jets fan, who wrote that he was flying home from Brussels back to the West Coast on a direct flight, so he had a long flight ahead of him, and he wanted to buy a book or books to read uh, online while he was on the plane, and he saw my book online and he he ordered it, put it into his you know uh, his, his computer, and he said I have read every book about the New York Jets, and particularly about the Super Bowl years. And I had no expectations that I was gonna really get anything out of this book. And he said, darn, that letter, every second or third page, he told me something I have never heard before. And that is the finest compliment that I can get from a New York Jets fan who thinks he knows it all. But it's also, I think, an important book for anyone who's interested in the history of of the NFL. And I in in even researching the book, I had to go back to the start of the NFL and find out where this league really come from? What was it like? And in the early years there was enormous instability in the NFL. They were playing teams with in Muskegon and Fort Wayne and and they were you know here and gone. They were there for a year, a year or two, and then they disappear. And it wasn't until the late 40s, early 50s that they basically kind of agreed on a plan we're only going to put teams in markets where there's a professional baseball major league baseball team and they would even name them the same names there was a new there was a Pittsburgh Pirates football team yeah. There was a Brooklyn Dodgers football team There was a New York Yankees football team um and and so the history of of football you know is really fascinating it's not like baseball you don't you don't think about you know, the great stars of the NFL from the 20s or 30s or 40s. Uh, the way you do about Babe Ruth and Ty Cobb and Walter Johnson and that sort of thing. And I think what my book really does is it gives you a tremendous look at the last great evolutionary age of pro football, which was the 60s, because the AFL succeeded where other leagues that tried to take on the NFL before the 60s after the sixties failed and you find it in the book. Why?
0: Yeah. I love the scope of that era and what it meant to pro football as a whole. And I love the unherald stories that you don't hear about in pro football. So your book certainly satisfied me on both fronts. So I'm glad you took the time and answer my questions, Bob.
1: Well, I appreciate the fact that you read the book and that uh, you got something out of it and being a young whippersnapper, the way you are, uh, <laughs> You know, I'm, I'm glad that you, you got something and enjoyed it because, you know, it was three years of my life to write that book. And as my wife said to me, you're having way too much fun as I was talking to these guys. And they they were just so giving in their willingness to tell me stuff. You know, it's funny. Um, I was told that Namath wouldn't talk to me because he'd want to get paid. That was true. I was told that Don Maynard wouldn't talk to me because he wanted to get paid. And Don Maynard was was really cheap. He didn't ask me for a dime. And he gave me whatever time I wanted to ask whatever questions I wanted. And he gave me honest, forthright answers. Very few people, uh, with one exception, when I asked about Curly Johnson and all the pranks that he played on some of his teammates, uh, people kind of shut up. But other than that, I I heard about everything else that was going on. And there's just... There's just great insight as to what makes a team work. And, you know, I'll say this last thing. You could write a book about any Super Bowl champion similar to this book in that, you know, take away the star quarterback or the star wide receiver or in in the Rams case, Aaron Donald. Who are these other guys on the field that, you know, that had to perform uh, the 50 the 45th player on the jets was the backup defensive lineman who basically played only on special teams. And he told me that he just didn't feel like he was part of the team because he wasn't somebody that anybody paid attention to. And I told him, and I meant it, you ran down the field on special teams and either, you know, got blocked or made tackles and there's no one out there that can say that you would have done it exactly the same thing that you were able to accomplish. So whatever whatever you did that year, you were part of a Super Bowl champion and of that team that pulled the greatest upset, you know, in Super Bowl history. And, you know, never back away from that. That should be something you're proud of.
0: Well, it, and to that point, too, I'm not sure if I'm thinking of the same player, but uh, he was – a linebacker in college who became a defensive tackle in for the Jets, and he was injured and felt that he never really reached his full potential. Well, you're, you're, not, I'm,
1: you're talking about Carl McAdams, I'm not talking about him. Okay, um, but his, his story but,
0: was interesting too, and in how you brought that to Oh, life fascinating!
1: Because he was he was going to be the next not Butkus, but Tommy Nobis became you know a big NFL star. Yeah, and Carl McAdams was considered right up there, you know, one, one and one a, and you know, Tommy Nobis, I think was the first pick in the draft. Mm -hmm. Carl McAdams was signed by the jets the year after Namath. And if he hadn't hurt himself in, in the college all-star game that they used to play before the season started, he might've had an unbelievable career because the jet linebackers to a man said to me, they watched him in practice before he went to the all-star game. And they looked at each other and they said, one of us is going to be out of a job. Yeah. This guy is everywhere. He's all over the field, incredible speed and, and tackling ability like you can't believe. And he came back, couldn't play linebacker anymore. He was that badly injured. Yeah. Uh, but they made him a defensive, a 225-pound defensive tackle who in spots could really make a play. In fact, on the on the famous... Flea flicker that the Colts pulled at the very end uh, of the first half of Super Bowl three, Carl Adams almost broke the play up, and you can't see it except if you look on the official game film that the league provides to each of the two teams every week. And I could, I have that film, and I could slow things down. And he 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 had his hand around Tom Maddie's ankles. And I don't know how Tom Maddy broke that tackle before he flipped the ball back tomorrow, but comic Adams just about had him. And that, that in itself would have been an amazing play.
0: Yeah. Especially given his story. Absolutely. Well, yeah, it's stories like that, that you bring to life. And I think that was what makes a writer succeed. So I think you did a, a great job writing this book, Bob. Thank you.
1: I I appreciate that. that uh, it's, uh, it's very nice to hear that from, from any football fan, but anybody who's going to take the time to talk to me as you've had today. Um, I, I'm, I'm very much in your debt. Thank you, Bob. Have a good one. You too.